continuing our series through the, the period of time after the exile. And now we have a new leader, Nehemiah. And he, Nehemiah was a great leader. He was a man of prayer. And I want to look at this prayer that he prayed today. And I, the question is, do you know someone in your life who you would call a prayer warrior? Or maybe you don't use that language, maybe a person of prayer. The question is, how do you view that person, that prayer warrior, that, that person of prayer in your life? Or how do you view their faith? And what impact has that person had on you? My guess is that as you think about somebody who you believe to be a person of prayer, that, uh, that their faith is quite strong. And my guess is that their, their influence on you or their impact on you is probably positive. And so people of, of deep faith are people of deep prayer. Our prayer and our faith go hand in hand. We, we know these things are, are so connected. In the Old Testament, um, this famous passage from Second Chronicles, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will he- hear them from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. Just this great blessing that comes from our connection to God in prayer and seeking him in prayer. And of course, Jesus, he taught his disciples, when you pray, you know, pray our Father in heaven. The Apostle Paul taught in his letters, you know, pray continually, devote yourselves to prayer. These are, it's it, part of a life of faith, is it's a life of prayer. We know this. It's all throughout scripture. Prayer integral to our faith. At the same time, Prayer can be tricky. There's those times we just don't know what to pray, or we don't know we're praying quite right, or we don't know if we're praying quite enough, or is my prayer actually doing anything? And you can get distracted. You start praying, and then you think, am I just thinking, or am I praying? And I don't know if I know the difference. And there's all these feelings about our life of prayer. And the, the worst part is people will even feel guilty about their prayer life. I talk to very few people who say things like, oh yeah, I pray enough. You know, God, I pray the way that, you know, God would want. And people feel, feel guilty. I think that's just the opposite of what God wants. God doesn't want our prayer to make us feel guilty. God wants our prayer to free us, to lift the guilt from us, uh, not the other way around. So prayer is so important and so central to our lives that this message is for all of us who seek to grow in our faith to also grow in a life of prayer. So let's pray together. Father God, as, as I speak these words, I believe that I am speaking to you, the God of the universe, and that you hear me. And that concept, that concept is no less amazing today than it's ever been. That you desire for us to pray and to be people of prayer, Lord. Our request is that we would grow in in this part of our relationship to you. That you would be our teacher during this time, that you'd help us to have insight into your word, and that we would be obedient to it. So we give this time to you, and we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, Before we jump into this prayer from Nehemiah, I have a warning. So the warning this week is this. Do not follow the heroes of the Old Testament, except when you should. 
Okay. Do not follow the heroes of the Old Testament except when you should. And this is uh, the question is, do, do we follow these Bible heroes and why? So my small group, we meet on Thursdays at lunchtime. We've been studying the life of David in the Old Testament. There's aspects of David's life and his leadership and his faith that are spectacular that I would love to follow and emulate. There's aspects of his life that I want nothing to do with and mistakes that he made that I would pray that I would never make. Um, and then I think of other leaders like Abraham and Moses and these great heroes of the faith. They're very flawed people. Even last week, we looked at a leader named Ezra and the decisions he made with the other leaders of his days. And they had these mixed marriages that were illegal under God's law. And they, caused, they forced these people to become divorced and they sent the women away. There are those who say, you know, they really shouldn't have done that. But he was in an impossible situation, right? You have illegal marriages, which God forbid, and then there's divorce, which God hates. And, and so what do you do? You know, and they were in a tough place. I'm sympathetic to what they did, but how do we know if we should, you know, how we respond to these things? So I'll give you, so when we think about Nehemiah and his prayer, why would I follow the way that Nehemiah prayed? So three principles. One is that Jesus is the only hero of the Bible, and he's the only one we should emulate. He's the only perfect one, the sinless one. Romans chapter 8 teaches us that our destiny as people of faith is to be more like Jesus, that we're going to be conformed to become more like Jesus. That's God's destiny for you as a believer. So he's the only true example that we should follow. Now, Jesus is more than your example. He's your savior. But certainly, if you're going to emulate anyone, you emulate Jesus. Secondly, we can also emulate people who emulate Jesus. Does that make sense? Uh, The Apostle Paul put it like this. 1 Corinthians 11, he said, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. He said, just, just, he's trying to disciple this young church. He said, do what I'm doing to the extent that I'm doing what Jesus did. Or that I'm living out what God has taught us how to live. And that's why we have people in our lives who are people of faith and people of prayer. And we can be inspired by their example. And we can learn from them and really follow their example. And that's a good thing. God has designed us to, for people to follow him and for us to learn from one another in that. So we can emulate people who emulate God. Thirdly, particularly for the, these Old Testament heroes, we, we can look at what they've done and what they're saying in light of God's word. So God gave his law to Moses. So God made that clear. So we know God's law. So you can see if somebody is following or violating God's law. We also have the word of the prophets. God speaking through human agents and God choosing and giving his word of, of warning and encouragement and his, his word, you know, applying uh, God's word to the, the situation they were in. So we have the law and we have the prophets to be able to understand you know how to view these heroes and but it's left up to us as the readers to to make that decision so today i would say according to those things nehemiah's prayer is definitely exemplary for us that it's included in the scripture here and it's it's a long prayer as it was read for us that we uh, can learn from this and learn about prayer and how to pray so i want to look at three things who prayed it why did he pray it and what did he pray as we learn from it? So first of all, it's Nehemiah. He's it's the who prayed this prayer. Nehemiah, we don't know much about him other than his name. Verse 1, Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Uh, Nehemiah, 
It, no, and it doesn't mean that he was the, one of the shorter people in the Bible, Nehemiah, because he's much taller than Bildad the Shuhite, much smaller, or the Roman guard who slept on his watch, the tiniest of these. Um, corny Bible jokes are part of my upbringing. My grandfather was a pastor, and they're close to my heart, so I will say them. You don't need to email me them, though, please. Just save those. I've seen them all. I wrote some of them. Um, but we don't know much about him. He was born during the exile. He never lived in the old Jerusalem. His, we know that he's son of Hakaliah. We don't know who that is. So we know very little about this man, except he gives us a really important piece of information in verse 11. He says, I was cupbearer to the king. He was a close associate of the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, one of the most powerful people who's ever lived on this planet. So he is a person of status and of influence. And he must of some way, we know cupbearer, sort of the wine taster that, you know, you're not poisoning the king. But in, in that day, that role could have been much bigger, uh, just uh, could become a confidant of the king of Persia. So he would have had to demonstrate honesty and integrity and was a person of respect and, and trustworthy. And even in the pagan culture in which Nehemiah was living, he was able to, to demonstrate these kind of character things, which is a great reminder for all of us. In a pagan world, people of faith can really shine as lights. And, and God can use that powerfully. We think in the Old Testament of people uh, like Esther or Daniel during the, also during the time of the exile, that God raised them up to very high positions of influence. Or at the time of, uh, of Joseph, in, when he ended up in Egypt, and, and how he was raised up to such a high position of influence. And God used that to be a blessing, and God does that. So we, we can lament that our world is becoming more and more you know, secularized and less and less faithful, but we as people of faith can shine as lights in dark places. So that's important. So he's, he is a person of, of great status. And you know, there's, there's a lot of conversation about um, status and privilege and the notion of white privilege. I'm not going to try to define or unpack that idea, but what I will say is this: whatever privilege or um, blessings of your life that you've experienced, whatever advantages that you have, God has given them to you to be an influence and a blessing towards others. God wants you to use all that you have to serve and to love your world. Uh, Tiffany, uh, one of our, our worship leaders, Tiffany, we love, she was telling me the story about her friend, Pastor Karao. And Pastor Karao lives in Kenya, in Nairobi, in the slum, the Mathare Valley slum of Kenya. And he moved, he and his wife moved from a rural part of Kenya into this slum. It's one of the worst slums in Nairobi, really one of the worst slums in all, all of Earth. And it's 600,000 people live in this three square miles, in these six foot by eight foot shanties. There's no electricity, no running water. There's some public toilets, but up to 100 people have to share it. You have to pay to use it. And most people live off less than a dollar a day there. So if you can't afford to use that, you just dig ditches in these alleyways in between these shanties. Uh, the uh, disease rate very high, life expectancy very low. Uh, just a, a place of, of a lot of filth. And this man, 
Pastor Corral moved into the Mathari Valley to care for orphans and adopted a number of children and cared for them and loved them and has an amazing ministry there. And churches and individuals in the United States were supporting him, so he traveled to the U.S. to, uh, to share about their work and to do some training and to do some fundraising for his good work in the Mathari Valley. So Tiffany had the, had the privilege of uh, picking, picking him up at the airport in in Montana. So so Pastor Corral gets in the car, he and his wife, and Tiffany's driving them into Missoula, Montana. And he's looking out the window. He's just come from the slums, the Mathari Valley slums. He's looking out at the the vast Montana sky. And he's looking at the mountains, and then the river valley passes right through the town. And just the beauty of the expanse of the landscape. And he's just taking it all in. And he looks out the window and he says this, Oh, to choose the place you were born. Oh, to choose the place you were born. If you have been blessed with a good upbringing, with education, uh, that you've never lived in poverty, God has blessed you in that way. If you have overcome violence, or poverty, or lack of education in your life. God has blessed you with that as well. Whatever blessings and status of life that you have, God is calling you to use that for others, just as Nehemiah did. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, he said, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. That because those who have been blessed greatly, that God has great things for you and expects them from you for others. And Nehemiah uses his status as cupbearer of the king to, uh, on behalf of others. So, he, uh, so it's Nehemiah. Why did he pray, though? Why did he pray this prayer? He prayed it for others. Nehemiah was asking about the condition of those who had, again, these people had been exiled in a foreign country, and some of them were given permission to return to to the region of Judah and to Jerusalem to rebuild their way of life and rebuild their temple and and rebuild their city. And he got this report, verse 3, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, Nehemiah says, I sat down and I wept. He was, his heart was broken at the condition that his, his kinsmen were living in. He never lived in that city, but he, he knew their plight. Now, this is not uh, the conditions. When they had become exiled, Nebuch- King Nebuchadnezzar came in. Um, and and he, they destroyed the city and destroyed the temple. That was 150 years before this. So he's not, upset, he's not upset about that. He's upset about the people who went back to rebuild. And there was further damage and further opposition. Probably around the time of Zerubbabel. We looked at him a few weeks ago. Uh, he had faced such opposition. Remember the work? They put the foundation of the temple down. And the work just stopped for like 16 years. Because there was such opposition and attacks that they were facing. And that's probably the report that Nehemiah is receiving here. That there's, there, there's just been this threat and the danger and this disgrace. So he prays. When, when things are just out of control and when th- we see things that are heartbreaking, we pray. 
When, when we just don't have, an, when there's not an easy answer, when your heart is broken for the plight of other people who are, who are hurt or sick or oppressed, or, we pray. And, and, when, and when we pray, we, we remember that in those moments of helplessness that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that God has this in his hands. So we turn to the one, it's in that very moment. And sometimes in those moments, we feel so helpless, we don't know what to pray, we, we get stuck. But God is calling us, turn to me, I'm the, I'm the powerful one, I'm the sovereign one. You can trust me in prayer. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does here. So he's a person of status who prays on behalf of, of others, and this is what he prays. First of all, he prays about God's greatness. Verse 5 Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. You know, when Jesus, it sounds a lot like what Jesus taught his followers to pray. He said, When you pray, pray, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. Here, Nehemiah prays, Great. Uh, the great and awesome God of heaven. He, he starts his prayer acknowledging who God is and worshiping him. Yeah, I know for me, sadly, there's many times when I, I, I see something or I, I'm feeling something and I want to pray. I just pray for my need right away. God, help me help this. God, change this situation. God, please intervene. And we, but we are called to f- not first start with our problem, but start first with who are we praying to? We start with worship. That's why when we sing, we sing, you know, uh, you, you are greater, you are stronger. It's just how great and holy God is. We, we pray these things and we sing these things because it reorients us. So whatever huge issue you're facing, and it feels so insurmountable, if you start your prayer with how huge God is, that problem shrinks, shrinks, shrinks. He prayed about God's greatness. Secondly, he prayed about God's promises. Verses 5 and 6. God uh, keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants. And then again in verse 8, he says, Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even... If your exiled people are the farthest, at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Nehemiah is reminding God of his promises to, uh, to act in the, in the world. Now, does God need to be reminded of his promises? Of course not. Yet, when, when, when we pray and when we acknowledge God's promises, two things are happening. One, it means that you know God's promises. And secondly, you believe them. It's demonstrating to God that we know and believe what he has said about himself and what he will do in this world. I look at it like when my kids remember promises that I've made. When they say, Dad, you said that if we did all of our chores before a certain time, we could start a movie tonight. Like I did say that. But what that signals to me, and they'll never let me forget that kind of a promise. What that signals to me is that they've heard it and that they believe it. And then usually I'm faithful to, I'm imperfectly faithful to follow through on my promises, but the God of the universe is perfectly faithful to follow through on his. So he prays of God's greatness. He prays of God's promises. Then he acknowledges sin. Verse 6, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands 
decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. It's a prayer of repentance. We talked about this last week, uh, but I'll just reiterate. um, and, And again, Jesus taught his disciples, when you pray, pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. That part of our prayer needs to be repentance. And it's not um, a one-time thing, but it's a continual rhythm and a lifestyle of repentance that we live as we pray. Um, I, I remember, oh, I remember um, David Midwood, good friend of mine, Lord, has uh, taken him home, but he, he taught me a lot about this rhythm of repentance, just daily repentance. And he would come to the office and tell me, you know, hey, I, I had a great time of prayer today. I, I, I repented of these sins, and he was naming his sins. And I'm like, wow, those are, re- those are real sins. And uh, he's just very open about it. But he could speak so openly about it because the rhythm of repentance was just part of his life. His sins didn't have power over him because he had given them to God. He had received forgiveness. There's a story of a um, Sunday school teacher who was asking the class, all right, kids, um, what do we have to do for God to be able to forgive us? What do we have to do before God will forgive us? The little girl raised her hand and she said, I know, Sin. We have to sin so that God will forgive us. And that's true. All you have to do is sin, and we will. And we turn to him, and we repent, and he forgives us. And we just, as we pray, remember that we are, first of all, that God is great and holy, and that we are not. And that this is, we're trusting his promises, not our own words. And that brings us to the fourth part of this prayer, is he actually asks for help. Verse 11, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. This man meaning the king, Artaxerxes, who he's going to go ask for permission and help to go repair the walls of the city. Just one line, this whole long prayer, his whole request is really just give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of the king. And it's the shortest part of the prayer. And that's actually a good reminder to us that his actual need was just a small thing. Jesus told his followers, he said, don't think that God's going to answer your prayer because you use lots of words and over and over and over again. He said, no, he knows your heart before you say it. Yet we are called, even though God knows it, we're called to pray it and we're called to, to bring it before him. But we, we're reminded in this that request is part of our prayer. But we don't, we don't start there. It, you know, prayer is not about me trying to get God what I want, me manipulating God. Prayer is about me conforming my heart to the will of God through communication with God. And as I've acknowledged his greatness and his promises and my sinfulness, then the desires of my heart are more in line with who he is and who I am, not just what I want. So that was Nehemiah's prayer. This is an exemplary prayer for us. Nehemiah was a great person of status. He didn't use his status just for his own advantage, but he, he used it on behalf of others. He, he saw the condition, or he heard about the condition of Jerusalem, and he wept over it, and he prayed for the city, and, and he used his status to go, and we'll look in the next couple weeks, about how he went to serve and to dedicate his life to, uh, to this rebuilding and to helping these people. And in this great moment of need, he prays to God. And this is a great example. But it's not the ultimate example. Jesus is the ultimate example. Jesus is a person of status, of ultimate status, the eternal Son of God, divine in his very nature. 
but did not use his, his status for his own advantage, but, but became a servant, took on human flesh, came to this world, went to Jerusalem, looked over the city, saw the condition of the city, and he wept for the condition of Jerusalem. And he not only uh, dedicated his life to serve, but he gave his life. And in his very greatest moment of need, Jesus prayed for the will of God to be done. Father, not my will, but yours be done. And he became obedient to God's will, which was his own death on the cross. The punishment for the sins of the world he took. That we can receive forgiveness and that we can receive new life in him. That's the ultimate example. But he called out to his father in prayer. And and for you, in your world, and the things that you see, and the things that break your heart, and the things that are just weighing on you, we too can be people of prayer. Whatever, Whatever situation you find yourself in, God has a purpose for your being there. So we pray and we call out to him and, we, and as we pray, we worship him and we remember his promises and we confess our sin. And yes, we let our concerns be known to the God who is in control. Let us pray. Father, help us to love our world. Lord, for the things that weigh on us, for the, the things that are just seem so, we seem helpless and it just seems out of control. We know that you are a God who's in control. Therefore, we pray. Help us to be a people of prayer. Help us to be a people who use everything that you've given us to bless and to serve our world. And may you, good God and great God, be glorified in it. Help us to grow in prayer. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.